We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. We would also like to acknowledge that recognition is nothing without action, and we invite our listeners to take actions towards reconciliation with us today in honor of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. By reading the final report and recommendations of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, we hope to better understand the complicated history of violence against Indigenous women and girls two-spirited and transgendered people. You can find the report by following the link in the episode description. Hello and welcome back to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host, Brittany Eklund. Today we're talking about mental health, juggling student stressors, and how professors are people too. Here with us in the studio today is Lisa McKendrick Calder, a registered nurse and an associate professor in the Faculty of Nursing, where she's been teaching for 13 years here at McEwen. Her research interests are rooted in the scholarship of teaching and learning with a focus on the mental well-being of students and faculty. She's just about to begin undertaking her PhD with research focused on student anxiety. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I just want to jump right in. Um, And the first thing that we kind of want to talk about is your journey as a researcher um, and kind of how you got here. So what attracted you to nursing and and led you to kind of follow that path? Yeah, I actually never thought I would be a nurse. I wanted to be a speech pathologist and I started undergraduate education in that. I got a summer job being a care aide in a continuing care facility and it became clear to me that I got really frustrated when I couldn't understand the patients <laughs> and what they were saying. So I realized speech pathology wasn't for me, <laughs> but I really re- enjoyed helping patients. And that's what decided for me that I wanted to become a registered nurse. Um, and so that's where my journey in nursing began, was from unexpected employment in education <laughs> or like during my university education. Okay. Um, so then how did you kind of, because you have been teaching here at McEwen for 13 years now, Um, how did you make the shift from registered nurse to teacher? Because, I mean, it it looks like you spent time in a lot of different specialties um, as well. So you clearly have a lot of knowledge to offer. Yeah. When I was a registered nurse, I worked with students a lot, a lot of because a lot of nursing students take practicums in different uh, facilities and placements. And I really enjoyed working in education and working with students. So I decided that I wanted to give it a try. So I started with clinical education and taking groups of students into the hospital and being their, their educator. I did that out in Vancouver, um, and I did that for about three years. And then um, I finished my master's and began um, the transition back to Edmonton and, and found myself at McEwen here. You did your master's in Vancouver? I did, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then you kind of find yourself becoming more of a teacher yeah. um, and then you actually start practicing like as a teacher. Can you then tell us a little bit about how you become now a researcher? Yeah, I think most of my career has just been an opportunity presented and I liked it and I, I went for it and it's kind of found my path that way. So um, I loved clinical education. I started teaching lab education. Then I started teaching theory education And um, I was given an opportunity to work on a project with another faculty member, uh, Dr. Colleen Makett, 
um, who was doing a research project on um, a teaching strategy she was using in the classroom. So that was kind of my first foray into research. Before that, I always kind of figured that was something other people did. Yeah. So that was kind of my first experience doing research was being a part of her um, her study. So she really kind of mentored me and got me interested into to research. And then I kind of, after that opportunity, I kind of thought, hey, this is kind of cool, especially because it was looking at teaching and the effectiveness of teaching and what students experienced with that way of teaching things. So um, it kind of fit and it made me really curious about a lot of other things. Yeah, because your body of research um, focuses on emotional and mental health um, of students and faculty. So, um, you know, what beyond that first study kind of really interests you in this body of research? Yeah, I found myself super interested in in um, mental health and well-being, resiliency, because just there's so much stress around us. <laughs> Undergraduate education, university, it's stressful. And students are doing jobs and have families and they have all these other demands on them. And it's not like it used to be where you just lived at home in your parents' basement and went to university for four yeah. years. So I see a lot of that. And then just stressors in my own life made me really start to be more interested in, like, how does all this work and what can we do that would make things better for us? Well, I imagine also that, like, nursing has to be probably one of the higher, um, I don't know, what do you say, higher, more stressful um, bodies of study. Because, I mean, not only is there this gigantic, massive amount of research about human anatomy and, you know, physiological I imagine mental well-being, but you have to not only interact with students, professors, but patients themselves. Mm -hmm. And my mom is a registered nurse and she can sometimes be like long distance nursing because patients can be be difficult. So would you say that there's kind of that added aspect of? For sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that aren't like cut and dry and right and wrong, especially when you start to be with patients because you realize all their contexts are different and this is okay here, but it's not okay there. And so there's so much that's like not like known a hundred percent. There's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of like trying to, especially when you're first getting started as, as our students are, right? There's a lot of that um, self-doubt and wondering, and is this what I'm supposed to do? And is that right? And do I know enough? There's a lot of like thinking they don't know enough. Mm -hmm. Our nursing students are really high achieving students. Typically to the average um, to get into the program is usually quite um, high. So it's like in the nineties, Usually it's about 94, 95%. So we find we have a lot of really high achieving students who come and, you know, now they've got a lot of competition from other high achieving students yeah. and they really push themselves and they expect so high of themselves too. So I found that in nursing, there's, you know, a high level of stress that, that students put on themselves, that patients put on them, that we as instructors put on them, that family does or all these other yeah. demands. So I think that's part of why, why I saw it so much. I'm starting to branch into looking at in other disciplines and other areas, though. And I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's not just because they had a high average to get in or True, they're working but with patients. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a keener myself, and I know that you know some people are will get a grade back and be like, "Oh, actually, that's okay." And I'm like, "Oh, it's not an A plus, like a failure." So yeah. when you know when you have a lot of keeners concentrated in one program yeah probably gets a little bit stressful so. yeah See, i'm the opposite i'm not i wouldn't i mean i'm a keener don't get me wrong i'm a keener but i'm more um you know grades are a little bit different they they, they they grades don't really matter to me i'm more interested in what my personal development is going for and i mean that and is. this is from the music department <laughs> right i'm a musician and and i come from the music department here at McCune university um 
where I'm, I, I realize that I might not be on the same level as my peers. Uh, that's, that's just the reality of being in the music industry. Um, so I try not to put too much stress on myself, but in nursing, that is, that is huge. Um, and I mean, it's great to see that there are so many keeners in the nursing yeah. because <laughs> they, they, they are, um, you know, heroes in our, in our society. So I'm really happy to hear that they're really good <laughs> keeners. Yeah. I have, I have a, a relative, a cousin who, uh, went for her RN and was just in Vancouver and, uh, she told me just horror stories about her her lifestyle that you know just to to make rent in Vancouver you know she mm-hmm. was working a full-time job on top of going to university for nursing as well as on top of that you know her practicums and everything like that so she was like she's like yeah I sleep about 20 minutes a day um, in the mop closet at the hospital and it was like how is your mental health? Yeah. And she's like, I'm going crazy. She ended up dropping out because, well, I don't, I think she ended up finishing, but she decided to go on a different path after that. Um, because that was, you know, that was almost a traumatizing experience and stressful enough for her. Yeah. So us talking about, uh, anxiety levels of students and stuff like that, that's right up this alley. Maybe there's a way that we can start talking about prevention. Yeah. Well, and one of the things in nursing that I find is that, you know, it doesn't get better when you graduate because you work shift work and if someone's not coming in, you have to stay extra. It's been in the news a lot lately about the mandatory overtime. Mm-hmm. So nurses work 12-hour days for the most part um, or 12-hour nights or they'll stay for a 16 or they'll work overtime. And then um, they might have another job to go to. And they to. might have another job. And so they work a lot of hours in a high-stress environment and a lot of unpredictability. So that's why I'm really interested more in the you know skills we can build in the undergraduate education yeah. so that they're less likely because we find that they lose leave the profession quicker than than we would like or that they would like after investing four years of their time in their education yeah so that and kind of thing is interesting a hundred percent and that's why I was like well I actually really wanted to talk about um something a skill building thing so your project um exploring the emotional response to instructor feedback I was kind of like looking through it and I thought it was really interesting. Um, and we'll talk about a couple things that are very interesting about it later. But can you just tell us and the listeners a little bit about this project and how you got involved? Yeah. So that project I did um, through the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. It's called ISODLE. And it's like kind of a consortium of, of um, people interested in scholarship of teaching and learning studies. So they put together international writing groups where people from different disciplines and different countries all can partake in a research together. Um, so I got, I applied for the program and, and uh, got to be put on a team with um, collaborators from Australia, um, the UK, um, and uh, the US. And there was someone from India, but unfortunately his Wi-Fi and his technology kind of gave out. So he was unable to progress with the project with us. But so we, um, we all had a shared interest in uh, student emotional response. Um, we were all different disciplines, so that made it kind of interesting for, for all of us to learn more about each other's disciplines. Um, but what we looked at was how do students respond when you give them in-person feedback particularly? So the first part was really just how do students, um, how do they feel they respond? It's all their personal um, responses of how they feel they respond when they get marks back and feedback back and what kind of emotional response they had to that. 
then we did um, give them in-person feedback. So they would come into my office and we would discuss how their paper was um, in person instead of like comments in some red paper that they may yeah. or may not look at or they might just see the bad things and not see those nice right. comments and all that, right? So we were quite interested in that because a lot of times we kind of as instructors, we kind of like when we're marking papers, we're like, are they even going to look at this? Is this going to be helpful to them? What will they do with this feedback? Um, and we kind of have to go by our gut as to whether our feedback is useful, helpful, um, and also kind of how the students do respond to that. So we were really interested if, if we gave paper feedback back to them, um, would that be more useful to them, right? Would they be um, less emotional? Would it help them process the information and be more helpful to them, basically? And what would be their emotional responses to that? Yeah, and like, what did you guys um, find? Yeah, find, so. uh, well, we were pl we were quite surprised the wide range of emotions that students um, identified that they had about just getting feedback in general in the past. Um, lots of negative experiences, lots of positive experiences, lots of this was super helpful. Um, none of the participants said they didn't look at feedback. <laughs> they all looked at all the feedback that they were given. Um, lots of anxiety um, around waiting for feedback, um, particularly the longer it takes to get assignments and, and, and feedback back. Of course, it would be more anxiety. Um, lots of uh, sometimes they would be upset, particularly if they identified that they'd become angry or upset or um, disappointed if the mark didn't match what they felt that they'd done on the assignment. So some of that was stuff that you can anticipate and expect. Some of the things that we were surprised by, though, was some of them, the amount that it motivated them. Either it didn't, it turned off their motivation, like, okay, I'm not going to bother in this class because I did so bad on that paper, so why bother anymore? No. So it turned off. Yeah. <laughs> Either they did so bad or I put in so much work and I, I didn't know that I missed this on the rubric, but why would I bother, right? So decreasing their motivation to keep working. But then in other cases, it was an increase in their motivation, particularly when we gave in-person feedback, we found that they said that that motivated them more because they had more of an understanding of, oh, that's what they meant by that comment <laughs> versus it just being a thing yeah. on a paper that they think you mean this and it might mean that kind of thing. Well, that's the thing that I found was really interesting. So correct me if I'm wrong, but how I interpreted what I was reading was that the study found that some negative emotions like shame can actually be activating and increase motivation where some positive emotions like pride could be deactivating. And that to me seems very counterintuitive because when you think about like shame, you would think that it would make you like scared or embarrassed to try again. But it can you kind of talk about those two um, yeah. emotions and why they have kind of these contrary to, to thought yeah, reactions? For sure. So it, it, it was quite surprising to us. What we found was if someone didn't do as well and they were kind of like um, they were often quite scared to come in and do the in-person feedback with us um, but as we gave it to them and as we talked through the feedback um, instead of them being ashamed um, they felt like oh you get that this isn't me you get that this is just my paper right you get that this isn't a representation of who I am or I think some of us were able to make them see that we knew this wasn't them and they, instead of it being them personally it kind of took some of that shame away but also it allowed us the opportunity to really talk through, okay, for the next paper you write, if you do this. And so it gave them more like an action plan. So I think that was the part that was motivating. So part of it was um, that understanding that we 
appreciate them as a person. We don't think that they're the D they got on their paper or they're the red notes we've put all over it, that, that there's way more to it than that. You know, I've had that, that same experience in, in my private drum lessons with, with my private instructors over the past couple of years where um, I'm, again, not on the same level as those other musicians that I keep talking about. Um, and I don't score very well on these, these, these tests, um, but my instructor is, is very, like when we go back and look at that, and, and go over all the, the test results and, and move forward. It, like they, they practice those same practices and say, okay, well, obviously you need to work at this. And here are the things that we can move forward on. And don't think that because you got a bad mark here, you're a bad drummer. Yeah. Because, and he sat our whole class down after this is like, guys and girls, like everybody that was in the class, you all didn't do very well on this, this <laughs> testing exam. <laughs> Um, oh, where was I going with that? Yeah, we, we all didn't do very well on this and there's a lot of work to do, but just know that you are all within the top high percentile of some of the best drummers in Canada, yep. given, you know, there's a lot, given there, given that there's a lot of drummers in the world, <laughs> obviously, but it was, it was motivating, you know? So it was yep. really cool to see that these, these, um, these practices, teaching methods to help students, um, see their value and and be motivational as well as like you know you you do see the the those emotions that that are conveyed where disappointment or or pride those two like if you score too well you're like I'm doing great I don't need to work well, at yeah, myself yeah. and that's something I'm really curious about is like so pride was deactivating yeah how does that work so like if they got a really good mark on the assignment and you know they were proud of themselves and they came in and we mostly had positive things to say then it was demotivating to them to continue on with really working hard in the class because they thought well i'm top notch i'm great oh right? i already know everything so, in the yeah, class okay. so they found that in classes that they were doing great in it was not so motivating to to I, do that i get that i get that like you're doing great in the class you just got a great mark on a big paperback or yeah, a paper when it comes back and yep. you're like, oh, I don't have to go to class. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take the day off. So you know what? Now that I'm putting it in the context of my own education, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know what is really de demotivating in my experience is not getting any feedback at all. Yeah. And uh, there's a few classes um, that I would take that I've taken not to not naming any classes um, where there there was no feedback the entire year there was there was no uh assignments it was it was a very practical class yeah um but it it was um like there was a little bit of verbal feedback but it was mostly like yep yeah, y'all are doing great keep keep going and then at the end of the year we have our final and that's our entire mark for the year other than like participation and and the other marks but the entire year i'm just like okay i guess i don't need to work at this class at all because there's no feedback coming back that we're not do you know it says we're doing it uh, everything great but there's no assignments for me to like check back on to see if like do I need to work harder yeah <laughs> so, it's I, it's a funny thing because sometimes I think we don't want to give the feedback like as educators we're like kind of scared to give the feedback we know it can be emotional we're kind of we don't want to upset people but like it's really an important element and one of the things that we found in this study but just in general is it's really like about the relationship so even the in-person feedback, it wasn't even so much about that assignment we were talking about. It's that 
I took the time to spend time one-on-one with the student and they knew that I read their paper and it was about this and that this was what would help, right? So a lot of it was about that. And once they had that connection, then they would feel more inclined to like continue to come see me or ask me something. And it it, it goes to what you're saying, because if you're not getting any feedback, then you also don't really, you're not inclined to like go and be like, you know, I was wondering about this point because this doesn't make sense to me. Or even, you know, I thought this and then I found that. You don't want to share things. So it's really about that relational piece, I think, a lot of that emotion. And that sense of, like, you care about them as a person. They're not just a paper that's on your desk. Definitely. Would you? Well, then, in that case, um, if there are instructors that offer office hours but may not may not do, um, like, a, a mandatory review of a paper or something like that, yeah, I, I this seems like an easy question, but you would encourage students to go to those office hours to, to seek feedback instead of just like expecting to get the feedback. Yeah, for sure. Um, things that I like to do in my practice for that is I always, if I have papers, I usually would give a choice, right? You can, you'll get your paper back, you'll get your mark back. Um, if you want to come in and discuss the feedback, I've always said come on in and discuss the feedback. Very few people ever do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do now. I learned after the first year to make sure that I tell them to read the feedback and wait 24 hours before you come in. <laughs> so if not, Very then they come so. in like not having processed it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I do recommend that. And especially um, like even people who do really well, like finding out that it demotivated them. Even if someone gets a really good mark on a paper and their paper stellar, I usually try to find things that I'm like, you know what, it'd be really cool if you wanted to try this type of writing or maybe in your next paper you could do that. So that even when they've done well, there's still something cool for them that um, that would kind of give the them the motivation that. to, yeah, because even if you're doing well, you kind of still want the challenge. You don't want to be like, okay, well, I'm not anyone's priority because I'm fine. Yeah. And you might have other things you're working on that you're like, okay, well, I'm definitely not doing great in this thing. So I'm going to like skip that class and work on that class. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. yeah. That sounds like that's the student life. It though. is. It, I mean, that's the reality of it. It is. Um, so what's kind of next? for this project? Because I believe you're doing a series of papers? Yep. Um, so we're finishing up our third paper right now. What we did is we interviewed faculty about their experience in giving the feedback, um, what their practices are, what their emotions are when they're preparing to give the feedback, when they give the feedback, kind of what they saw in the process of giving in-person feedback for papers. In nursing, we give a lot of in-person feedback, but not for papers necessarily, but in clinical I imagine in, in music, it's very similar. Fine arts, there's a lot of similar types of, of um, things, I imagine. But in some disciplines that some of my colleagues on this team were, they don't have any in-person feedback. So one of them was in geology. And like, they oh, don't have cool, huh? any in-person connection, right? So it was very, very different for them. So really just looking at the practices of doing it. What do we do to prepare ourselves? Um, what kinds of things do we do when we're having that in, um, meeting? And kind of our processing of things as well. So that's kind of our final step in this series right now. Okay. Well, yeah, that's very cool. And yeah, I. what were the other, um, you said there was like an interdisciplinary, what were the other ones? Like, so geology, nursing? Uh, medical radiology. Okay. Um, psychology. And uh, the fifth one is... Um, healthcare preparation. So at um, in the U.S., they um, do one or two years of core courses that could be for any of the healthcare disciplines. 
And she taught in those first couple of years. Which is funny because it's like healthcare, radiology, geology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The geology was definitely the outlier there. But that's very interesting. And yeah. like, I imagine like, yeah, the context and the actual content of the course and how you give feedback would be very different. So that's going to be actually like an interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it was also really interesting, no matter what discipline or what country, same sorts of emotions. It's not like there was differences in any of the, you know, the, the students all express the same sorts of things from the variety of countries and the variety of disciplines. There was maybe a little bit more anxiety in the geology group because they weren't used to having to talk to their teacher. Um, but uh, but outside of that, um, or maybe they just termed it as stress more than anxiety, I guess, about that stress of preparing to come mm-hmm. in. Um, but outside of that, it was pretty universal, no matter what country or discipline they were in. I mean, I want to keep going back to music because that's all I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there's there's a whole new set of in- anxiety that comes with music is because it's considered an extremely vulnerable. Um, art form. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of different art forms are very vulnerable uh, as well. But when you're when you're trying to express yourself it, it, with your instrument, and maybe you've 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 written a song that you're not sure is good, yep. and you have to present it to people, and like the anxiety of that is is crippling. That you you see a lot of performance anxiety from um, from students. Yep. Um, but it's I I think that's one of the one of the things about being at music school is trying to overcome your anxieties um for performance anxiety and and things like that and try and really be just comfortable presenting yourself in in that way yeah it's it's tough i imagine it would be very vulnerable feeling and it'll come and go i'm sure too right you'll have days that you're fine and then another song that you're doing if it's new or if it's really emotional to you and you're really invested it'll um, kind of be be that again, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I think this is actually a great jumping point um, into your next project. So you also have a project on anxiety in the nursing education environment, and maybe it will open up doors for a project on anxiety in the music department. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, can you tell us a little bit um, just about this project focusing on anxiety specifically in the nursing education environment? Yeah, so um, for this project, I I work with um, many researchers from the Faculty of Nursing. Um, In this project, um, I worked with Dr. Cheryl Pollard, um, Tanya Weber, Christine Shumka, and um, we also had two nursing students and a psychology student with us. So Kylie Mori Thomas Thomas Chase and Shivani Selenki joined us as well. Um, What we were really interested in, we hear about anxiety, students tell us about their anxiety, we can see the anxiety, particularly around assignments when they're due and, you know, we hear about it and we all try to do things to help to lessen the anxiety, but sometimes I would wonder, like, did that make it worse? So for an example, a student would be really overwhelmed and say they needed an extension on their paper and I'd be like, of course, you can have an extension if that'll help. But then I'd see like the week later when their extension was done that it was even worse because that paper now bumped into another paper and another paper. So that kind of experience really just made me interested to be like, okay, what is helpful and what's not helpful and where does the anxiety come from? Is it from internal? Is it from school? Is it from home? Like we'll kind of get a better sense of what that is. So um, for this project, what we did um, is um, we interviewed uh, focus groups of students and um, the first, we did grounded theory research, which means you're starting with like nothing. You have very broad, open questions. Um, and we really just asked them a lot of questions about their anxiety in the learning environment. 
We define broad, uh, anxiety very broadly. So we, we, and we ask students, participants for their definition as well. So when we talk about anxiety in the learning environment, we're talking about what someone might call stress, someone else might call it anxiety, but whatever the participant saw as their own anxiety or someone else's anxiety. Um, so just, just not diagnosed, <laughs> medical diagnosis, yeah. anxiety or medicated or any kind of parameters like that. But we really got a better sense of where and what they were getting some of this anxiety from. So then in our second round of focus groups, we could ask more details about that. So we found out that, for an example, um, in uh, the, the learning management system caused them some anxiety. And we found out that that was because every teacher sets it up differently and everybody has different ways of doing things and some people don't use it at all. And so we could ask more detailed questions about all the areas that Sorry, exist. what's the learning management system? Oh, um, Blackboard oh, Learn. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Blackboard. All right. Blackboard, yeah. <laughs> and every teacher does it differently and we don't realize we all do it differently, right? And we all communicate differently and... Students all communicate differently, and you know, than we do too, right? So, you know, I wish there was a standardized <laughs> uh, thing across the university. That my biggest pet peeve, uh, and I think something that would help a lot of students, is if all you, if all faculty and professors were um, using these these. Um, what did you call them? What, 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 what oh, did, learning management. Learning systems? management. Yep. Using these learning management systems with their calendars yeah. and the, all the assignment due dates in these calendars. But we have so many that it's just like, okay, the assignments do this date, but it's not actually in the program. And so you're, you know, when you're trying to schedule your life, I'm horrible at that. I think Brittany's much better at that than I am. Um, but yeah, uh, I really wish that uh, everything was just <laughs> always in one place. Yeah. And I could just go and see. It's like, okay, I have 20 assignments coming up next week. And uh, now I can manage my time instead of being like, okay, I got to go through this class. Where are the assignments there? Got to go through this class. Yeah. Physical day planner. I highly recommend having it. I have a I physical book that I write it in and then I can like I just want to look pass through the book when I'm anxious and be like, okay, whew, you have three flips of a page yeah. until this. Thing. I just want I just want to pass off my that workload to somebody else. That's Fair the enough. only reason I say that. I love the physical day planner too because you can cross it off when it's yeah, done. It's and it so, feels so, so good. good. <laughs> it's such a good just... Yeah. Um, but that was one of the things that they said that, you know, having one place where everything was communicated and written would be so beneficial. So we were able to get into more of that um, and really get a better sense. So that was one example. But we really found that there was life things. Um, this research that we did and all the focus groups occurred during COVID. So, of course, okay. things that that's why the, the Blackboard was more important because they were learning remotely and everything they got came from Blackboard. That so, must have been a, another learning curve as well, right? Like yeah. we were all adapting to this new way of learning and new new way of getting our information from our instructors and stuff like that. So that's huge. Yeah. I have a question because something that makes me very curious about uh, when the shift to online learning happened, um, I was still a student and something that I found incredibly anxiety inducing was going to classes on Zoom, yeah. Um, because I don't think that we are supposed to look at ourselves in real time <laughs> that much, and it just draws like I think I heard um, that something was going on now with uh, it's called Zoom dysmorphia. Yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if any part of of this study kind of if that was a factor, like um, if the actual delivery of of virtual communication with others. Virtual definitely made a big difference. There was a lot of, um, it, the timing was of our study was actually quite um, 
lucky in a lot of ways because the students said um, that it was really nice, even just at the focus group, to hear, oh, other people feel that way too. It, they didn't focus so much on the Zoom feature. <laughs> Most of our nursing students don't turn their cameras on in our classes, okay. so that might be a part of it. But that in itself, I think it really shuts down communication. Yep. It's very hard. It's very lonely feeling to be like a and little black screen in a sea of black screens. Yeah, and that was a big thing. Everybody talked about the isolation, the being at home. You know, you have one room and you do everything in your one room. Um, I'm sure the instructors strug struggled as well trying to stay engaged during those lessons when it's just a sea of black yeah, screens. Yeah. No a, a few of our professors had requested, you know, can we please have, you know, if you, if you don't feel comfortable, don't do it. But I would like to be able to talk to people yeah. and have it like keep a conversation, even though we're not in person. Yeah, it's really hard to teach to black screens. And you, you don't know, did people put on their computer so it says they're there? Yeah, right. Are they there? Are they listening? Are they laughing behind I the did, screen? So <laughs> I just one of our last classes of uh, the last semester, I decided to do a cooking show during my class. So as, as our class was progressing, it was a very long class. I think that was a three-hour lecture. Um, I had set up my multiple cameras because I, I live stream on Twitch sometimes. Um, so I set up a multiple camera angles over my cooking stove and over my cutting board. And as the class was going, I was still in class, but I was like chopping onions. <laughs> and everyone was in the comment section being like, whoa, what are you cooking? And I had all these overlays. It was beautiful. But uh, those are the one of the things that I wouldn't have been able to do without um, a virtual classroom. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and ways to connect, because that's really what it's about, right? Connecting with someone. What are you cooking? What are you doing? Like being interested in each other. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that isolation was hard. Technology yeah. was also really hard. A lot of people didn't have proper Wi-Fi. I had students who'd have to sit outside of Starbucks because the free Wi-Fi at Starbucks, so they'd sit in their car for all their classes because that was how they That's could get wow. access. And um, particularly exams were terrible for most students. I imagine you guys didn't love them. <laughs> um, but online exams, there was some benefit though. Um, okay. a, a lot of them actually said they liked that home exams because they didn't have to see their peers and get all nervous before. They didn't have to see people leaving because they finished early and you're a slow exam writer and you're seeing everybody leave and you think, oh, how did they get that? And I'm still on question 30, right? So, yeah. so for some students that was beneficial, but for others it was terrible. Um, I think the benefit that I loved about it was I could roll out of bed five minutes before class, yeah. turn on my camera and, <laughs> and uh, start my lecture and then I could go brew a pot of coffee and come back with my coffee. And if I needed to go to the bathroom, it was only 10 seconds instead of 20 minutes. Well, you don't have to like it. do that thing where you're like, can I please bathroom yeah oh, I, <laughs> you I, feel I, like a little kid i've never done that <laughs> well i'm a keener and i'm a stickler for the rules um <laughs> it'll be an adjustment for all of us right mm -hmm. to go back no, we have like, to wear real pants we have to I drive know. we have to get up i'm like in the if morning, they fit anymore <laughs> yeah yeah i know many of us had to go buy some <laughs> yeah i was like oh i can't wear sweatpants anymore yeah. I, I think that was part that was part of you know being locked up as well and that might be anxiety from anxiety or whatever but i i guess definitely gained 15 pounds over yep. over the pandemic i think they call it the quarantine 15 yeah but i think it's like be nice to yourself because like everyone where are we going we're not commuting we're not going to our physical jobs you can't go to the gym you can't go to the pool you can't yep. go to the park because it's february like yep. <laughs> it's minus 30 or it's like an ice Squall, you're like okay. We'll get back on topic one of these one of these times. Yes, but I, 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 do I have a say, question about the topic as soon as then, you're. I wanted to say, um, 
why can't school be in summer? Like, why can't we have good weather while we're trying to learn? Because I don't want to be inside a classroom in summer. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's totally fair. I guess we do have a spring and summer semester, but I find it extremely depressing to be wake, waking up when the sun doesn't come up for another four hours I because mean, it's winter. That's a job too, though. So you'd be working yeah. during the winter no, months. No, I don't work. Okay. <laughs> I'm a musician. <laughs> come on. We, there you work, go. we work at night. Um, okay. So I do have a question about this project. Mm-hmm. Get us back on to topic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you mentioned grounded theory approach. And I don't know what that means. You briefly touched on it. Yeah. But like, can you tell me a little bit what is grounded theory and why you guys used it here? Yeah, so when we looked in the literature, because we thought, well, there's got to be stuff written about, like, what does increase anxiety? Where does the anxiety come from, right? We thought, well, there's got to be something. But there was nothing. (laughs) The stuff we would find, it would be like, oh, if you infuse lemon oil during exams, exam stress goes down. It was, like, really specific to particular areas, but nothing really at all other than that. So we were kind of starting from nothing, um, other than our own kind of biased thoughts of, I think this makes it better. I think this gets it worse, which we didn't trust. So of course we didn't want to do that. So with grounded theory, you kind of start with nothing and you off ask really broad things and then you get more narrow. Um, at that second stage, after we got kind of the more narrow um, description of the areas, we created a model of where that anxiety is and kind of the different uh, areas. So then for our third phase of focus groups, um, we um, t- presented our model and we talked about, you know, when we had this part of the model covers this and this part covers that and really got kind of consensus from from those student participants. And then we also invited back a group of participants who had been in the first two phases for their um, kind of validation that, yeah, that model represents it. So we've kind of created a model of what areas that anxiety comes from and it's really broad there's stuff relating to social determinants of health like like food like economy like rent access (laughs) to wi-fi access to wi-fi access to groceries so that you can think um, things like that um there was things in the learning environment like the physical learning environment so during covid times the fact that they were in their own home versus here maybe uh, labs for an example a lot of our labs similar to um, music, there's a lot of performance in them. So it's a different thing, um, but but same sort of idea. There's a performance that they're yes. putting on. So um, we found out a lot more about that. Um, teacher practices was another area. So, yeah, we kind of created a broad model, and now we kind of have this as our starting point. So now what we want to do is kind of look at, okay, well, what in this area could we do that would be helpful? So we didn't really find any answers as to what's helpful um, that are like, scientifically like proven but what we did find is we really used a lot of that information that informed our teachings particularly through the winter term because most of our focus group data came in the fall term so we were hearing what was hard for students in the online learning so we would adapt to that like so when they we heard a lot about how um, they were isolated there was not really a lot of time to talk to each other so we'd incorporate that like even just five minutes of like something funny to talk about in class mm-hmm. or things like that. So we were able to kind of make some adjustments to our teaching practices. Things like we we heard a lot of them saying, well, I never leave my house. I don't even go for a walk. So we would start class by like, okay, what are you going to do for yourself this week as a little reminder? So we were able to do some personal adjustments to our teaching practices that I had, I think had positive influences for students as well because they seem to really appreciate that. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really cool too because you couldn't find anything and now there's 
a study. And off of that study, you can build more studies. So I think when people think of theory, because we've all learned theory in some capacity in our studies, you think of like all these like old guys (laughs) (laughs) coming up with like models that you then have to like memorize and, you know, put on an exam. But this is very cool to me because grounded theory, you guys are creating theory and it's making it, it's a much more contemporary thing. And I, I think you know, it's hard to conceptualize. The theory is being made all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty cool to have new theory that is not just a bunch of old guys yeah. <laughs> who and came up with everything. And it's like common sense things. It's like practical, tangible. It's not some kind of lofty um, thing that's not helpful, right? I can look at it and be like, okay, I'm going to impact that area. That's mm-hmm. where I want to try, right? So, Hopefully. yeah, just before we... Take a little break break here. Um, I just want to know, what are the next steps for this project? Yeah, um, we are just finishing up uh, with our paper. um, And we're just kind of looking at where we want to go next, actually. We we had planned to try to um, start an uh, actual, like, okay, well, this is the area we want to impact. And let's see about how we could impact that. Um, But we're kind of going to take a little bit of a a break, kind of look at it again and figure out what part we want to impact. Um, for myself, I think one of the things that I want to look at doing is um, is further exploring student disclosure of anxiety. Um, so I'm looking to maybe do a small project with a couple of students with anxiety, like self self um, disclosed anxiety, and what their experiences are when they tell someone that they have anxiety. So what their experience is when they tell their instructor that they suffer from anxiety. What about their peers? Because like a lot of things we heard in the focus groups didn't really make it into the, like some of this didn't make it into the model, but it would be like, well, I told my friend that I get extra time because of my anxiety on my exam. And they said, oh, I wish I got a little more anxious, <laughs> right? Like, so that disclosure, how do people take that? Do instructors help them? Um, is there things that would be more helpful? Those types of things. So kind of doing a little bit of looking at that um, for just a, a small kind of uh, look, just to get a better sense of what that's like for a student to experience. Yeah. And again, a really cool, fun thing about research. Uh, we were talking to Emily Milne and she said, if everything in your research project doesn't make it into your paper, don't get rid of it. Put it somewhere else yep. and it becomes a new project. And that sounds kind of like what you're doing is like, okay wow, this thing led to this thing. And just like the little trail of discovery that happens in projects like this yeah. are so cool because again, something that's going to expand and build into like something, a real body of, of tangible research into these student emotions and experiences. Yeah, so. Isabel and Robert were talking about that as well on one of our other podcasts is the idea of a not a research project but like a research what did we what did they call it a research portfolio or a research um it was an ex- essentially like if you're thinking about a f- uh, computer file folder hierarchy yeah. it's like all your little f- uh, research projects are the individual folders but you have the grand folder that has all your little research projects within that same discipline in it so your research plan for all these different things but the broad topic yeah. and so yeah maybe I think we'll edit in the word when we find it yes <laughs> probably not I, we'll, we'll just listen to our other podcast and you'll yeah you'll, you have you'll to listen, listen to, to the podcast to know what it's about yeah. um but yeah i think this is a great place for a break this is research recasted and we will be right back after this short message 
Have you heard about unbelts? Unbelts are the zero bulk belt for people of all sizes like me. Their goals are to help you feel great in jeans and provide well-paying jobs all along the supply chain. Everyone who sews for Unbelts earns a living wage, works in a safe, comfortable environment, and has a flexible schedule. I know that my favorite masks over this pandemic have been from Unbelts. The masks at Unbelts are very light, beautifully colored, and most of all, they're super comfortable and long-wearing. Unbelts really cares about their products and about sustainability. Their belts come with free repairs and in-house upcycling. This means less waste and sustained quality. They're a triple threat, stylish, sustainable, and ethical. Visit Unbelts.com, U-N-B-E-L-T-S, .com and see for yourself. All right, we are back here at Research Recasted. I'm Dylan Cave. I'm here with Brittany Eklund, and we are chatting with Lisa McKendrick Calder uh, about all things stress, student stress related, and those things that might impact faculty at the same time. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Again. Again. <laughs> Thank you again. Um, yeah, so you're working currently on a project examining the impact of student stress and mental health on, obviously, students, but also instructors, which I think is is really interesting. So can you tell us about the project and how you got um, involved? Yeah, so I was really curious about this for a really long time. Um, as an educator myself, I've had experiences with um, students where their mental health was was um, perilous or kind of on edge. Um, I've had suicidal students that I was interacting with, panic attacks in the classroom, things like that. And particularly when I was a new educator, there's a lot of like, what if I did that? What if I said that? What and and a lot of unknowns. And did I do the right thing? Can I help in a better way? Could I have done this? That kind of thing. But even just the the amount of stress that students have, as an example. Like it weighs on the instructors as well. So that's one thing I hope students know, um, not to feel guilty about it, but just to know that their instructors really are impacted by that as well because we want to help. We go into education because we want to support students and that. So it's not, um, it was just, I found it a fascinating area. For one, a lot of self-doubt, especially as a new educator. Um, and I thought, well, I'm a nurse and I've taken some mental health training and I know a little bit about things like like panic attacks and um, about depression, not a, not a ton, because I've never worked in mental health, um, but I, I have some background in it. And so I thought, wow, that's that's pretty impactful. And there's a lot of like, do we know enough, right? Or do, are we doing the right thing? And um, inevitably, um, when we're interacting with students, it's generally in a one-on-one setting. So it's not like there's someone around who you can say, you know, oh, what would you do in this situation? Is this right? Or is there something else you can think of? Because you're at home, it's like a Friday night at midnight and you get an email from a student who's really distressed. So I just found myself a lot of that self-doubt, a lot of that um, lost sleep. I would I would find for myself I lost sleep a lot or I would be worrying a lot. Um, and it didn't go away after the first couple of years. I got a little more comfortable because I got a little bit more confident that I knew the resources that I could send the students to. And I knew a little bit better, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I knew how to answer that email or what way to connect with the student a little bit better. But there's still lots and lots of like, oh, what if? Just like in real life, <laughs> everywhere else, not just in our teaching. You know, you, you have a friend who's distressed and you you lose sleep, you worry about them, you wonder, right? 
So, I mean, you don't have to deal with hundreds of friends, but you might have to deal with hundreds <laughs> of students. Yeah. That, and constantly uh, evolving and rotating uh, in and out each semester. Yeah. So that's a that's a big challenge. It is. Yeah. And and, you know, like I think a lot of times we would see as faculty, we often see that um, particularly in one on one settings, lots of times you'll have a student in your class who comes into your office hours or they say, I want to come in and talk to you about their paper. And then they come in and it's not about the paper. It's about all this stuff that's happening in their life. And I think sometimes because we're not like their family, we're not their friend, there's no judgment, they feel more comfortable just like letting us know what's happening, right? And a lot of times they just want to know, they want us to know so we know that they're normally really organized or they're normally this. But also I think a lot of times they're just looking for where can I get help and what can I do? Sometimes the help is just sitting and talking them through, okay, what do you have to do this week? And talking them through kind of like what they're dealing with, um, sometimes school-related, sometimes not. Um, and otherwise, if it's not school-related, like if it's about mental health, it's about, okay, these are the resources because we're not trained counselors. That's not our role. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, yeah. that's that's so above and beyond what, what uh, professors are here for. But in the same sense, you're totally right. They are, I've, I've been there where I've been, you know, confiding in, in one of my professors about personal, personal things and vice versa. It almost, you know? Yep. Um, and and I think that's just being human. Yeah, I think so. And it's that connection, right? And a lot of people, like none of us, even as adults, I don't want to go talk to my mom and dad about how my mental health is not no, good. No, right? I'm like, I'm so, so that's great. that's not a good option. <laughs> and my best friends, well, maybe kind of depends on where they're at. If they're great, no, not, not right now. But I'm really mm -hmm. hoping you know, that... lots of that. I'm really hoping that with a lot of the new services that we have access to, um, I, and I hope people can start to feel a little bit more comfortable talking about mental health, yeah. especially with their parents and stuff like that. I mean, you always want to feel like you, you want to do your parents proud and, yeah. and things like that. And if you're talking about mental health, it's like, oh, they're not going to be proud of me, but they want you to be happy. And, and like, those are the difficult conversations that may bring you closer to your, to your family. Yeah. Um, they're hard conversations and it's this, this entire conversation is not an easy one, but I'm hoping people can start talking about their mental health a little bit more yep. um, and reaching out to the people that can, you know, help w let it out. You, everyone needs somebody to talk, talk to. And I'm, you know, we're everyone needs therapy. I say that to everyone. I yeah. say it to my parents, my friends, my brother, my sister. I'm just like, you need therapy and it's not personal. Everyone needs it. So like, just you do, yeah, you don't, you don't need to be completely depressed and, and, you know, at, the, at your wits end. To, to need therapy you you could be fantastic but sometimes you just need that thing that that thing to let it's it out hard to be yep. alive nowadays um it so is. yeah so you were kind of your own experience so my own experience just kind of made me curious and then as I've been teaching longer I found more and more people would be like coming to talk to me about you know this just happened and we would kind of talk about it and support each other a little bit but you know, and it's all about, it is about the students, but especially in the more, um, more aggressive or more acute or crisis, like things like suicide, um, expression and things like that, you need to worry about everybody who's being exposed because that exposure impacts everybody. Right. And I would find a lot of times people would be all focused on, well, what did you do? And, you know, they, they ask you what you did and who you called and why didn't you call this person? And why didn't you do that? And, oh, didn't you tell them this? And, some of it would then further traumatize you to make you convinced that you did the wrong thing, even if things had turned out fine, right? Or even if you'd done everything you could. But there isn't a lot of like, um, 
there's not a culture of like, oh, that's hard. That's a hard day for you too, right? Because obviously the student's the one that's experiencing the difficulty, but that exposure and that trauma is for everybody around, right? Students that are with like the friends of that student, all sorts of things. So um, I just found that was maybe lacking a bit. Um, but also people were changing that. People are seeking out their their peers and their mentors for things like that. So they would seek out each other, but there isn't kind of that awareness that like, oh, this impacts you too, right? So I just found that I was curious about that and wondering how how it's experienced in other faculties, other disciplines. Um, in nursing, we're, we're pretty um, caring <laughs> and we, we do kind of nurture that a bit in each other. But also nursing can be really bad about that because there's a lot of traumas around us. There's a lot of crises around us. So it's like your patient dies in the hospital and you just get a new admission. Like you don't say to that nurse, oh, do, you know, how are you doing with that? You just say, oh, you know, like, do you need help to clean up the bed? There, there's a new patient coming, right? So we're kind of socialized that way. So that's why I was really curious what other people's experiences were. So for this project, um, I had um, met with eight faculty members from across the university, none in nursing. Um, I wanted to hear about the different disciplines' experiences or people's experiences. So um, I did the the project as an ethnography, which was really, it was a focused ethnography because ethnography is really about the lived experience and being in that and kind of being a part of it. So it's kind of an institutional ethnography because it's all in McEwen, it's all faculty and it's kind of their experiences past. And then um, I, I met with them throughout the semester and exchanged emails about things going on throughout the semester to really get a sense of how their experiences are with student and mental health. Who are some of the professors that uh, you worked along with? You don't actually, I don't know if there's like a FOIP thing you want to... Yeah, I can't, um, I can't identify who they are okay, because of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, the, the faculties, maybe you could mention which faculties yeah, were you um, there engaged was, in? Yeah, there was uh, faculties from arts, faculties from science, uh, faculties from fine arts. Um, and uh, I, one of the advisors, the student advisors, um, and someone from um, um, kind of faculty support services as well. Um, so kind of a wide variety I purposely stuck away from nursing because I didn't really want to talk one-on-one in depth with one of my colleagues that I see every day. And Fair enough. <laughs> I thought that might be a, be a bit biased much. Yeah. Opinion. Yeah. So um, where are you, like, where is this project kind of in its lifespan? And, and do you have any, like, preliminary kind of findings? Yeah. So what I found with all these interviews is that we have amazing people at McEwen, <laughs> like very amazing people. That all, like every single participant is super aware of and caring about the mental health of their students and the well-being. There's a whole spectrum of differences amongst how we interact with students with, uh, um, in general, whether we assume everyone has um, kind of um, needs for, um, so universal design of kind of like, there's instructors who design their whole course around this will minimize kind of the stressors on the students if I do this, um, if I do that, uh, things like universal extensions, everybody gets one. You just, you get five days and you tell me which five days you need, right? That kind of thing. So there's a whole spectrum of that to the, the one-on-one, um, I'm going to meet with you more in depth and, and kind of support you more personally. So a wide spectrum of different strategies that teachers use, but from the, the people who I interviewed and also I know from my colleagues, there's a whole lot of thought that goes into it, um, and into how we best support it. Um, how we best support students in, in uh, um, need while still balancing the academic rigor of programs and 
courses and things like that. So yeah, because I think sorry, and I'm gonna just cut yeah, you off there quick. Do. Um, something that jumps out at me um is like the difficulty in balancing the need for critical feedback. Like we have to, as anyone, like any living person, in order to grow and learn, we need to know kind of not what not to do. Yep. Um, it's great to know what to do, but sometimes you don't know what to do until you know what not to do. Um, yep. So, yeah, did you find that, like, how are instructors balancing their own emotions to be like, I have to give critical feedback. I know this person is struggling. I can see their stress or they've told me about that. Like, how do you approach that? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an art I found. Um, like with with all of them, they kind of described it as an art. And like I said, with my colleagues as well, I see it as an art, that balance of, okay, I know this is going to be devastating to them. So maybe I will talk to them in person about, you know, this instead of uh, instead of it being as formal or maybe... I'll give that extension to this person because I understand they're struggling right now, for an example. So there's a bit of an art and kind of reading that. Um, things that came through from from the participants as well was the importance of boundaries. A lot of faculty here and, and everywhere. I mean, in life, we've kind of lost a lot of our boundaries. We work all the time. Our phone dings. We answer it. It might be midnight on a Friday night and it's a student email and we're like, ah, I don't want to make them wait. I'll answer just like we do in all of our lives, right? And same thing for students. They do, they're doing the same thing, right? So um, boundaries came up as one big thing. Sometimes the boundaries was about time and when they would be available to students that might have needs that are non-academic like that. Um, sometimes the boundaries was about this is my role and, you know, I'm not here to talk through kind of this stuff. They all were very caring people and I think in general the things I know about from the 13 years at McEwen I've been is that that they're all caring people. So it doesn't mean if they say, you know, I'm not going to talk about this, it doesn't mean that they're just going to leave you though, right? They're going to, you know, they'll give you the Kleenex, they'll listen to your story, and then they're going to refer you to the appropriate places. Yeah, because right? it doesn't benefit anyone mm -hmm. to have someone giving guidance and counsel on sometimes some pretty like acute cases of, of mental health and things people that they may not be trained on you yeah. know yeah. they could give bad advice and bad be liable advice. for something horrible to yeah. that would happen because of that as a result yeah um, and i totally understand that i think everybody is trying to be as compassionate as possible if they do decide to give that advice yeah um it's just it's it's something that not a lot of people can sh or should give advice on Yep. It's, it's a hard, it, you know, it can be hard. Yeah. And I like, I also have a question just about, and I don't know how to form this without perhaps sounding insensitive. Um, but like, what about, like, did you hear from any faculty um, about their experiences with maybe people that are trying to game the system or do you know what I mean? Or use, like, we've all use been to university. To get ahead. Yeah. We all know those people that do tend to have an excuse for everything or or procrastinate or not do the work. So I feel like, yes, everyone is valid in self-describing if they're having mental health issues or, or something like that. But there's got to be someone in there trying to kind of take advantage of that compassion. Did you hear anything like that from instructors? I did. And um, most of the time, it's we have a lot of doubt about things sometimes. And most of the time, what I heard from most of the participants 
was that, you know, um, there is that doubt sometimes, but also none of us really want to be the judge, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because this might not seem big to me, but to you, maybe it is. And maybe you're trying to game, maybe you're not. That's where I really started to see some of the participants going into that more universal, like, okay, you can have an extension, but everybody can have an extension. So, because they're saying, like what they'd say is they'd say like, yeah, you're willing to come in and tell me that you have this problem. But how many other people might have the same problem, but they just don't have the courage to come in and tell me and ask for something, right? So, or or how many people are just going to say, right now you could just say that I have a fever or I have a cough and you can get out of things, right? Yeah, so right? Like it's very sort of easy idea. to... But most of, the, most of the conversations that I had with people and most of the experiences that they were having was very much that they were saying, you know, it, it is what it is for people. Um, and we don't want to judge that. We don't want to decide that. We want to just support in whatever ways. But to try to find ways to be fair and reasonable and accessible to all because we didn't want to disadvantage students. Mental health is um, personal. There's a lot mm-hmm. of stigma so we didn't want it to be something that disadvantaged people who weren't coming in to talk to their instructor about it. Well, 100%. And I think for every one person that comes in to say something, there's X amount of people that are just trying to like yeah. hold on. And I personally, like anytime we would get a class extension, I would be like, bless whoever wrote in and was like, I can't do this. And now I'm just sitting here and being like, I can breathe for another second. Okay, I got five more days. Like, thank yeah. you. Thank you, person. <laughs> yeah. I always procrastinate when that happens because I, this is horrible to say, I suppose, but I work better under pressure. And I think, especially from coming from a music background, um, that uh, when I have certain creative projects due, um, I am one of those people who just like, okay, the project is due tomorrow at midnight. I'm going to stay up tonight until 5 a.m. really grinding it out and and making that project happen. And it's actually more oftentimes than not, it's something that I'm extremely proud of. But because I'm under that pressure, um, I can I can I'm capable of grinding that out and doing it. But heck, if I was not didn't feel the creative flow that day, I would sure sure as heck uh, be grateful for extensions. But if I get those extensions, I'm going to procrastinate until the day before five days from then yeah yeah (laughs) that's uh that's kind of who i am if you want to know a little bit more about me (laughs) yeah it it was really fascinating to talk to the different people and just i got a lot of similarities of things and everybody has their own way of doing things that's authentic to them which was really Mm -hmm. interesting and like i said i really got more and more appreciation of just how amazing the the faculty here at McEwen, our staff and faculty are at uh at McEwen, and um so and I learned a lot from their ideas. They would share ideas of what, like things that they did that worked. I'd share things with my colleagues. They'd share things. So it kind of grew um, in different ways, the usefulness of the research, um, but also um, really getting a better picture. I, other things that I saw is it wasn't universal to me, that feeling of being alone when you're the one that just dealt with something with a student, right? And that feeling of like, well, what about how I feel, right? Because you know, everyone obviously can focuses on, on the student in need. So it was not just me who had that feeling. Almost all of the other participants had had episodes at some time, whether it be years ago or ongoing, um, that they were dealing with stuff and helping with a student and they had some impacts. 
Um, it did seem with most of the participants that over time they develop strategies to make that less impactful to themselves. Again, lots of times boundaries and this is my role, that's outside my role, and so then you can rationalize. But still some of that self-doubt. Um, again, this, pro this um, project took place during COVID, so um, a lot of self-doubt for faculty because just like for students, it was an all-new learning environment. We were all working from home. We didn't have our normal, like, you pop by your neighbor's office and be like, oh, my gosh, you know what just happened to me and debrief, right? So even the normal, like, kind of casual debriefs, it, it's not that faculty go and talk about students, but they might just, even if they just went in and said, oh, I just had a day, let's talk about something else for a bit to mm -hmm. distract us, right? So even people who were experienced and said it didn't normally bother us, lots more worry about student mental health. Because we didn't see, especially with no cameras on, you can't see. And are they okay behind that camera? Yeah. And you don't know if they're okay. And we're assuming things because mental health is not good right now for a lot of people. So lots of kind of doom and gloom thoughts or, okay, everything's okay until I hear otherwise. So there's a lot of uncertainty for even experienced faculty throughout that. Yeah, would you say kind of like, like what were, when you're looking at similarities, um, you mentioned the self-doubt being a big one. What were some of the other like situations or feelings that faculty are finding the most difficult to deal with when it comes to managing like student stress and, and mental health? Yeah, a lot of it time factors, the amount of time that it takes to, to help students when they do have these needs. Because it's, again, it's usually more that one-on-one -on -one time. So your 10-minute office visit about the paper is now an hour and a half, and then you have to go to this and do that and notify this person or find them help with getting resources or things like that. So time was a huge factor for most. Um, their own kind of uh, emotion and sleep and kind of how that was going, and um, those were, were kind of significant findings for them. Um, again, it, it gets better, and then you'll have times where it's worse if it's something unexpected that you've never dealt with wide variety of things that people were dealing with too. So anxiety is one, but lots of, there was um, episodes of, of uh, suicide. There was lots of bullying, um, lots of different things occurring in the different faculties. So, and, and lots of them, things that I in nursing never had to experience. So that was really interesting. Different disciplines had very different types of considerations and concerns and That's things really that were That's really interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so with this study, um, my colleague in Australia that I was working on the other project, she did the same exact procedure in Australia with um, eight faculty there at the same time. And uh, again, very similar kind of findings. Everyone's different. So all of their kind of profiles or their, their stories are all different, but very similar findings in terms of student mental health, types of considerations and concerns that they were experiencing the way that they felt. They also felt that loneliness of, and that lack of like, okay, what do I do about me now? And that, that feeling like, well, I shouldn't be worried about me. I should be worried about them. And so lots of similarities, which again, I found really interesting to kind of see this. You think about other places in the world as being so different than our own. So it's interesting yeah. to see how the same it really is. Well, I like the humanness of, of, helping or not helping the humanness of kind of watching someone else struggle. And I think especially when you have a personal connection and there is a personal connection between the professor and the student yeah. and especially for people who are very empathetic. Um, yeah. So like a little emotional sponges, I don't think I could <laughs> be a professor and try to deal with 20, 30, a hundred people who 
you know, their mental health is going to be affected by me. Yeah. Well, I think there's a big disconnect in what students see of of professors and instructors. Um, you know, there's there's a stig st- a stigma bet- among students that, you know, my professor doesn't care about me, that, you know, I'm just a number to them. And like they see these big institutions and they, they just dehumanize the professor and think they are they are like pretty much just a computer telling giving us information uh for us to gain knowledge and i i think that there needs to be a lot more compassion and humanization of on both sides of of the spectrum here because students will feel shut out and they will they will feel like there's no one to talk to and they will feel like their professor is being too tough on them and that you know they don't care um and i'm hoping that uh, you know this this research that we're discussing and disseminating right now is going to help break down a little bit of that stigmatism and a little bit of that disconnect to help students realize that their professors, they, they do care and they, mm-hmm. they have a lot on their plate as professors. And then s- professors out there, the the same goes for, for them as well. Yep. It's a huge two-way street. Um, we need to be very considerate of others, uh, including those that might be in a paid position that are... Well, it's, it's like your parents. Sometimes <clears throat> you don't see your parents as people with human needs, wants, desires yep. and things. So, you know, looking at... Yes, all of us are are navigating this place, but just because someone is in a position of authority or you think they have it more figured out than you do, realizing that at the heart of it, like we're all just a bunch of people trying to get through the day and figure it out. So, you know, of course, compassion going both way works, but I think it, it does serve universities well, students well, and other educators well to know that like, to be considerate of of student mental health is important and impactful um, to those who teach them as well. So. Yeah, that's a thesis right there. Yeah, it is. Oh, oh my well, goodness. Well, I mean, that's her research project. Yes. <laughs> well, in this summer, I read a book called Relationship Rich Education. It's um, it's a really fantastic book, um, and it's on that relationship between student and teacher. And basically, the authors instead of doing like a research paper. They interviewed like hundreds and hundreds of people and focus groups and stuff and wrote a whole book on it. But it really, a lot of what you get out of the book and just in life is that it's really about those relationships. If we go back to the emotion and the student response to taking the time to give feedback in person, it's about that relationship building that I do care about students as a person. To me, that's the value of McEwen. The smaller class sizes, the the focus on teaching, that teaching is the focus for faculty. I don't know if all students know that that's um, um, kind of our focus here more than than in others. Um, But really, all the faculty that I meet here at McEwen, they're all really focused on their teaching. Um, And that really is when they hire faculty, that's what they're looking at, is teaching first. And that that should be our our goal. But it's really about those relationships, because that's what's going to empower and inspire and provide both ways like I learn from students all the time and I hope they learn from me too right but that relationship between us is what really helps awesome thank you so much Lisa for sharing that with us is there any place where um, will this ethnography be published and will it be available for people to uh, look into this study yeah it's not um, we're just finishing the the paper at this time so it's not um, ready yet (laughs) Um, it was my summer project and I felt I needed a little more time in the summer. Well, it's now November. So, so yeah. I, it w- oh, yes. Um, well, it will be submitting it this fall. 
Um, and uh, I'm not sure which publication venue. Um, the one that um, we believe it'll be published in will be an Australian um, uh, journal on uh, teaching and learning in higher education. Um, so that's our goal is for it to be published. Well, if it venue. is published, you can find a link to it in the episode description. Um, right below. Just, yeah, just right look, below. look, look <laughs> right below this episode. <laughs> if it's published, yep. Yeah. Um, so, Thank you so much for that. Yeah, just before we kind of open up the floor to you to, to finish us off and finish the interview. Um, I want to go back because now we've talked about all three of these projects and, you know, at the beginning we're talking about how really you come from nursing and you're looking at ways in which these kind of resiliency techniques can be taught at the beginning of education in nursing so that nurses maybe don't have that kind of burnout or, or leaving the program. So Kind of what what things have you learned from these three projects that can now be adapted into like teaching practices? Yeah, so I learned a lot. If I put them all together, I learned a lot that there is a lot we can do to help our own mental health. And I like to share that with students. Um, I like to remind everybody how important self-care is, right? So even just to take a minute to say, what are you going to do for yourself this week? Especially when you got those long to-do lists. But Lots of little behaviors will all make a difference. And so I think initially when I would have started, if I hadn't done these projects yet, I would have been thinking of like one big thing that we could do. But when we look at mental health and wellness for everybody, it's all these little things. So I think it's like finding that accumulation of little things that this helps and that helps and let's all do this. And I'm, I'm exploring and learning more about what we can do for ourselves as well. So again, trying to find strategies that I can encourage students to do um, and just role model as well um, by doing for myself as well as, as for others. And really another big thing that I've learned is we just need to have these conversations, faculty to faculty, faculty to students, student to student, student to student. As soon as they heard someone else had that same anxiety, they were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> or they were relieved, right? Um, or if they heard someone had the anxiety from this, they'd be like, oh, that doesn't make me very anxious, but this really does. So I think, again, it's all about those connections and um, those relationships. But again, I, I'm learning a lot about it's little things here and there. There's no one magic bullet that we're looking for. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you. That's everything that kind of we had to ask you, but we really want to invite you to leave us with like any other thoughts calls to action, like shout outs, even like if there's a someone you want to collaborate with, if you want to shout out to them here. Um, yeah. So we just want to leave it with you to, to let us know if there's anything we missed. No, I think it's great. I just, I guess my, my one kind of call to action would be mental health matters and it's all around us and it's not just diagnosed things, right? It's the little things we do for each other that we do for ourselves and have those conversations and reach out for help. McEwen has lots of supports for her students um, and finding out how they are. And there's a website um, to provide a link to, um, and it will provide you with some uh, supports. And then there's other supports as well. So um, I hope if it's a student who's listening to this and they do have some concerns that they do reach out um, to their faculty or to someone for the supports that they need and that they realize that, um, um, that 
we we care. <laughs> yeah, and if it's a faculty, uh, it's a faculty, you reach out to. <laughs> yeah, reach out to each other. Reach out to whoever. I'm happy to talk to anyone, any faculty, all the yes, time. Lisa I'm will happy. personally <laughs> counsel you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for being yes, here with thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we wish you all the best with your doctoral research as well, which is very exciting. So congratulations. Thank you. And have a blast. And we hope to maybe have you on again someday when you're done that, and we can talk all about that. Thank you so much. Now I get to have student anxiety this year as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to keep the party going, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes airing every two weeks. And don't forget to follow, give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave. And research, copy editing, and scripting is by me, Brittany Eklund. Executive producers are Cynthia Pudu, Jason Milenko, and Ray Burry. Thanks again. Stay cool. <laughs>